Hey GeoTrekkers, welcome to another exciting episode of the GeoTrek podcast. As you know, we love to explore the world, bringing you insightful stories about travel, extreme weather, disasters, and resiliency from all kinds of settings. This podcast kicks off a three-part series on the U.S. state of New Mexico, the land of enchantment. New Mexico is a fascinating state. Its physical geography is filled with high desert and grasslands broken up by massive mountain chains. New Mexico has a volcanic history, which is why some of the mountains stand out as lone peaks, and it also explains the prevalence of hot springs. Culturally, New Mexico has a fascinating mix of Native American culture deep European history that goes back to the 1500s and 1600s with the arrival of the Spanish and then an ongoing mixture of people who have settled here from various backgrounds, including Hispanics and Latinos who have come often from the South, Anglos who have often immigrated from the Eastern US or directly from Europe, and even a growing Asian population in cities and university towns. I came out here to document a complex set of natural hazards. It's really a one, two, three punch with the mega drought that's been impacting the West, including New Mexico, and extreme drought continues to build under the prevailing La Nina weather pattern. This has set the stage for massive wildfires this spring, and now with plentiful monsoon moisture streaming in from the south, flood risks suddenly increased as heavy rain falling on the fire burn scars threatened to produce serious flooding. We'll get more into the details behind the drought, wildfire, and flood hazards in the next episode when we share a podcast about cutting-edge research conducted at the University of New Mexico. For the current episode of the podcast, I was traveling around New Mexico documenting the impacts of heavy monsoon rains. On the evening of Monday, June 27th, I found myself on the grassland south of Vaughn, chasing a strong thunderstorm where I wanted to see the local impacts of heavy rain. I got my wish on a dirt road through ranch land where heavy downpours quickly turned the road into a stream. This region has a geographic term called arroyos. They are mostly dry creek and riverbeds that can fill up with violent torrents of water following these heavy rains. I did not come across any arroyos that evening on the rangeland when there was a thunderstorm, but I did see how quickly the arid landscapes around here can generate fast-flowing water. Without the presence of a forest canopy or thick organic material and soil on the ground, a lot of this rainwater can run off very quickly. As the storm transitioned into one of the best sunsets I've seen in the West, I started looking for motels the night I was doing my storm chase. The best deal I could find was a little more than 30 minutes to the northeast in a small town called Santa Rosa, New Mexico. I was able to resist getting a blizzard at the local Dairy Queen next to my motel. I was a good boy and just checked in for the night of sleeping. In the morning, I discovered that I had stumbled across a hidden gem. While Santa Rosa is on Interstate 40, enabling travelers to just zoom on by, Those that get off the interstate and explore this town will be richly rewarded. Santa Rosa has a population of 2,469 people and an elevation of 4,620 feet, according to the sign posted at the town entrance. It's the county seat of Guadalupe County, which is the fifth least populated county in the state of New Mexico, containing less than 5,000 people, according to the 2010 census. What Santa Rosa lacks in population, it makes up for in character, grit, and history. The railroad provided a population explosion 
Washington when it arrived in the early 1900s, and the city continued to grow through the 20th century as it was located right on historic Route 66, the iconic highway that motorists took out to California from the Dust Bowl and the Depression right through the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Santa Rosa's population has declined through the decades, and its economy has shifted. We'll talk more about that in this podcast, but for an observant traveler, the town retains a level of substance and character that is evident just below the surface. Along the main drag through town, the restaurants and motels that remain open are individual mom-and-pop establishments, not big, big box chains. The town has much historic architecture, and get this, one historic reser- restored movie theater showing the new release movie Elvis this summer, but zero Walmart stores. Locals get their groceries at Food Mart right on historic Route 66. Tourists traveling to New Mexico commonly visit Albuquerque, Santa Fe, and Taos, but few people have ever heard of the little town of Santa Rosa. But these are the types of places off the beaten path where I can really enjoy a day and gain a lot of insights from interacting with the locals. Jordan and Micaiah at Comet Restaurant took a lot of time to chat with me and teach me the ins and outs of New Mexico's famous green and red chili peppers, and Dina at the library gave me helpful insights about the local history. She also showed me some stains on the library carpet, where floodwaters traveling through the porous limestone near and under the building have caused some flood impacts. This confirmed to me that floodwaters can reach us in so many different ways, even through porous limestone in an arid climate. Dina strongly recommended I speak with local historian Dan Flores. She showed me a shelf full of books he had published on local and regional history. How could I find Dan? She gave me directions to his house from the historic Catholic church in town, and I approached his front door without an appointment. When I knocked on his door, I was greeted by the reply, come on in, and was licked by his super friendly dog named Punky. In this setting, I met Dan Flores, a most welcoming host and a new friend who is happy to share about the local history and record a podcast together. This episode covers a lot of content, from the history of trains and historic Route 66 to the natural history of droughts, floods, and sinkholes. Listen closely for the train passing by around nine minutes into our conversation, as well as Punky's paw steps when he would approach me for some affection. If you love the content of GeoTrek, we ask you to kindly subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Your subscription helps us mark professional progress and ensures many more episodes to come. We love getting out to these great places and bringing the world to you. If you uh, subscribe to our podcast, it helps us to maintain and do many more episodes in the future. Now, without further waiting, let's get right into podcast episode number 35 of the GeoTrek podcast with local historian Dan Flores in his home at Santa Rosa, New Mexico. Hey, GeoTrekkers, we're here for a new podcast with a special guest, Dan Flores. I'm in Santa Rosa, New Mexico. This is at somewhat of a crossroads in history. Dan, appreciate you taking time to come on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Glad to be able to help. So, uh, Dan, we were just talking about you've lived in Santa Rosa most of your life, and you were sharing a little bit about your claim to fame of where yes, you were born and grew up. In 1946, I was born in the, in the same house in Puerto de Luna, which is 10 miles south of Santa Rosa, where Billy Kidd in... On Christmas Day, in 1880, had his last Christmas dinner. Billy Kidd was a prisoner of Pat Garrett, and he was on his jail on his way to jail in Las Vegas, which was a county seat. Uh, Puerto Luna was uh, about a, a third of the way between Fort Sumner and Las Vegas. And he had his last Christmas meal in the home where you were born. Exactly. Of wow. course, he was a prisoner. He wasn't a guest. So, and then this was a home that was in your family. Well, it was my great-grandfather 
from my great grandfather later in the 30s. My that was my maternal great grandfather. In the 30s, my paternal grandfather bought the house. Oh, okay. So it stayed in my it stayed in my family. It stayed in your family for yes. some time, and so you grew up here. We were talking a little bit about this as such an interesting place, uh, a place in the in eastern New Mexico that actually had some very good water resources, right? It did. It did. Could you share a little bit about what you told me about the the trains? How you know they they wanted to use the water here for steam engines, but there were some problems okay, with back that. Back in 1900, when the railroad railroad was first coming into New Mexico. Um, they surveyed the area and they found that Santa Rosa would be the ideal place for uh, one of the railroad depots because Santa Rosa had lots of water. Back then, though, the water was high, had a high alkali content, which they didn't really know too much about. So when the first railroad came through on the day after Christmas, December 26, 1901, they stopped in Santa Rosa and Santa Rosa entered the 20th century on that date. But the railroad soon realized that the water was too damaging to the locomotives because of the content was very corrosive. So eventually they wound up moving the roundhouse from Santa Rosa to Tumcari. In the meantime, before they were able to do that, they did build a water line from the southern part of New Mexico close to Alamogordo up in the Cloudcroft area into Pastura which is uh, south of Santa Rosa. The water line, incidentally, was all gravity-fed, and instead of metal pipe, it was all wooden pipe. And I, I remember talking to some people that still remember seeing the remnants of the wooden pipe that was out there. It was wood wrapped in, in a metal cable. Dan, what, so what was the purpose of this water line? Where was it transporting water to? It, it was transporting water for the locomotives to Vaughn and to Pastura. So it was taking the water kind of away from here, from the Pecos. It was, it was bringing good water, fresh water, into the area. I understand. From Cloudcroft into, again, uh, uh, northern New Mexico. Oh, I see. And this was water that was not as alkaline. It wasn't. It was from the and mountains. And for the locomotives could, could yeah. use it. That's right. And this was really a crossroads of, of several railroads. Is that correct? Vaughn became a crossroad, the, the, the crossroad of several railroads because that was the the Rock Island in El Paso, sometimes they call it the Pre Railroad, Rock Island, El Paso, again, came through in 1901, early part of, latter part of 1901. Later, in, or before 1910, the Santa Fe Railroad also came into the area, not into Santa Rosa, but into Vaughan. So for a time there, Vaughan was the only city or town in the United States that had two major railroads. They had the Rock Island in El Paso and the Santa Fe Railroad passing through. Then I was just at the library and I read how quickly life changed when the railroad came because with that often came the telegraph, it sounded like, it right? It did, exactly, very quickly. And, and the workers and everything else. And one of the things that people don't like to talk about is that uh, the communities also developed red light districts. Uh, to to meet the needs of the workers or men that were working for the railroad. So these towns just population-wise, when the railroad they came, exploded. they exploded, yeah? yeah? At that time in 1901, the county seat was Puerto de Luna, which is where I was born. It was 10 miles south of Santa Rosa. But when the railroad came to Santa Rosa, Santa Rosa's population quickly outgrew Puerto de Luna, and eventually the county seat was moved to Santa Rosa. But before they could do it, they had to form a new county, 
because the existing territorial law then stated that you couldn't move the county seat from an existing county. So the solution was just make a new county, and then you can have your county seat. I understand, and this is Guadalupe County, right? Well, well they also had they also changed the name. They changed the name to Leonard Wood, and again, Leonard Wood became a county in 1903. Leonard Wood was a famous general in the Spanish-American War of 1898, and it was a way to honor him by naming uh, the county seat after him. And at that time, the railroad was coming through Santa Rosa. Through Santa Rosa, right. The name of the county remained changed for for two years, 1903 to 1905. In 1905, the local population sent delegations back to the territorial legislature, and they asked them to rename the county. This time, since they weren't moving the county seat, they were simply changing the name of the county. They renamed the county as Guadalupe County. Incidentally, uh, when we when we were Leonard Wood County, Roosevelt County was also formed at the same time. Uh, Roosevelt and uh, Teddy Roosevelt and uh, General Leonard Wood were two heroes of the Spanish-American War. Uh, General Leonard Wood was the commanding officer of Teddy Roosevelt. And could you share a little bit about these railroads coming through town? I mean, what did that look like? Did it come through daily? Was it twice a week? I mean, who who would have been on these there trains? There were several times a day, and I know talking to, to, to friends of mine that have since passed that um, back when, when they were in high school back in the 40s, that they could come to Santa Rosa on the railroad for 50 cents a day, or they could come on the on, on, on a bus for 50 cents. And these would have been from towns. Uh, this would have been from uh, from Newkirk, which is Newkirk is halfway between Tucumcari and Santa Rosa. The other thing is, back in 1910, when we started playing basketball, the teams would travel by railroad because we had a railroad, Tucumcari had a railroad, and it was easy for people to travel back and forth. So they didn't travel have to, by railroad to a basketball game. We didn't. They didn't have to worry about the roads, or they didn't have to worry about having a car. or having several cars take the team because they all went on the train. Wow, that's fascinating history. And then obviously um, this becomes kind of a crossroads again with uh, Route 66 coming through here in the in the Dust Bowl times, it right? It does. And as a matter of fact, uh, in 1920, I think it was 1927, there was a real, a real famous cross-country race, foot race. Uh, it came to be known as the Bunyan Derby, which... Uh, essentially was to promote Route 66 and also someone's idea to make money. Santa Rosa was one of the stops on the on the Bunyan Derby back in 1986. Is this like what we would consider an ultra marathon, like hundreds of miles of racing? This was a, a coast-to-coast marathon from, really? from Los Angeles to New York City. And it came right through here? It came right through here. The runners would travel about uh, 30 to 40 miles a day. From Santa Rosa, they went to Newkirk, which is about 31, 32 miles away. From Newkirk, they went to Tubencare. To, uh, Before they came to Santa Rosa, they went to what is now Milagro, which is 30 uh, some miles from here. Before that, they had stopped at Moriarty. Again, that was the Bunyan Derby. Wow, that's fa- right, right before history. Right before the Great Depression. The next year, they tried the same thing. They didn't use Highway 66. They used a southern route. But what happened by then was that the the depression was getting underway. So those two years were the only only times that they had that great Bunyan Derby. 
Dan, let's talk about the Great Depression. I mean, uh, this whole area became very famous through the Grapes of Wrath, right? Um, it did. With Steinbeck, the, the novel and the movie eventually with a lot of folks coming from Oklahoma out towards California. You shared an insight about that movie that, that you understood locally that a lot of people wouldn't know. One very important scene to us in Santa Rosa was that uh, when they were making the movie, they filmed the, the people going from Oklahoma to California in their truck crossing the Pecos River Bridge. But in order to get the scene correct, they, they took poetic license. And when they filmed it, they were actually going east instead of going west. And by doing that, they were able to get the truck crossing the bridge. And at the same time, the railroad bridge, which was next to the Pecos River Bridge, had a locomotive going through. And it was a very colorful scene. So they thought from a cinematic perspective, it would look better if it was going then, west to east. But in a sense, they were really going in the wrong direction. And again, it's poetic license. They, they do things like that to, to, to make it more interesting. Dan, let's talk about the Dust Bowl. So a tremendous drought in the Southern Plains. And people have said it was part natural. Other people said, well, it was part maybe man-made from, you know, not the best farming practices. Nonetheless, you had a tremendous amount of people that were in a bad situation and trying to get west to California to work in agriculture. And they, they really, many of them came right through this region right here through Santa Rosa, right? Exactly. That's correct. How did that change the local culture? I mean, did some of them ever stay here? Did they did they all pass through? And and what did the, how did that change things here locally on the route I of Route 66? I think eventually what happened is that many of the people that were here already eventually wound up living Santa Rosa and moving into Arizona or other railroad towns or into California. What happened, and we were talking about that earlier, is that uh, the American government had opened up land to homesteaders. So there are large homestead populations all over this area. Those people came in and they tried to ranch, they tried to farm, but they found out that there wasn't enough water to do that. And, and then when the droughts hit, they couldn't survive, so they eventually had to abandon their homesteads. And th you're talking the homesteads in the Southern Plains uh, that they were they were homesteading like no these are the local homesteads in, in around Santa Rosa oh around here yeah well so let's talk about that because uh, some things I've read have said that there was a pretty good water source here there's a lot of I guess groundwater in this area but sometimes they would experience droughts so that they uh, they couldn't farm is that right again the problem with the water here is high in alkaline so what we depended on largely for irrigation here was rainwater. Rainwater, not just for irrigation, but also for people in farms that had cisterns to, to be, be able to survive and drink, and also in water from the river. Uh, when when the when the drought came, the biggest drought that I, I can remember, well, that I've been told about, was a drought in 1937. At that at that same time, the federal government had undertaken a project south of Santa Rosa, between Santa Rosa and Fort Sumner to build a new dam, which at that time was called the Alamogordo Dam. Uh, now it's Sumner Lake. They named it after Fort Sumner. That was 1937. What people at that time projected was that because of the ra rainfall that we're getting, was that that dam would be a, like a cure-all for all solutions for future floods, that it would probably take about 48 years to go ahead and fill up. Well, there was a very, very severe drought, so so severe, as a matter of fact, that uh, many people were extremely frustrated. They had processions praying for for rain, but uh, I guess they believed that their Heavenly Father wasn't listening to them. 
they kept on doing that. Some, sometimes they even took out the baby Jesus to show him what, what his dad was doing to the land, to complain to him, hoping that the baby Jesus could talk to his dad to bring water. Between Santa Rosa and Puerto de Luna, there was a man who had a, cro- a cross up on the, on the mesa. And the cross is still visible. It's visible from, uh, from the highway. He had put that cross there as a sign of his religion and dedication. Well, he got so frustrated because of the drought that one day he went out there and tore down the cross. After, shortly after he did that, the rains came and came and came and came. They flooded out several bridges throughout the Pecos River, uh, a, a, a bridge in Dilia, which is north of Santa Rosa, was completely washed away. The bridge in, in Puerto de Luna, where I grew up, the water didn't, wa- didn't wash it away, but the water went over the river so that people couldn't cross the river. They were so afraid, and again, Fort Sumner, Sumner Lake, Alamogordo Dam was, was in the process of nearly being completed. Federal government workers were so afraid that the dam would not work that they had airplanes standing by in case the dam broke to fly down south to places like Alamogordo, I'm sorry, like Roswell, and further south to Carlsbad to warn the people that there was a big flood coming. Well, lo and behold, the, the, the dam worked. The airplanes never had to go warn the people. So, Dan, if I'm understanding this, there was a dam being constructed on the Pecos. Yes. This is late 30s. 1937 was the the heart of this really, really bad drought that was so right. extensive. And people, like you said, were praying for rain, desperate for rain, and never came. And then all of a sudden, it, it changed from drought to flood uh, very quickly. And Extremely the, quickly. The concern was that this dam, which was mostly built, may fail. And you said they even had aircraft on hand that they could fly down the Pecos River Valley um, uh, potentially to warn people downriver if it did exactly. fail. Exactly. But, but the dam did not fail. It helped. It didn't. It worked. And again, the story then was that, and I think I mentioned that uh, they had projected that it would take 48 years to fill the dam. What local folk used to like to brag about was that the dam that was supposed to take 48 years to fill up took only 48 hours to fill up. It was that much rain that quickly. And I'm sure the, the 48 hours was a little bit of an exaggeration, but it filled up that quickly. The other thing, the man who tore down the cross, I guess he thought that he was being punished for, ta- <coughs> for, ta- for taking the cross down. So he very sheepishly went back up to the mesa and put the cross back up. And eventually the floods stopped. And it's still there to this day. And it's still there. In Santa Rosa... We have a place called here Power Dam. Back in the 30s, Power Dam was actually a generating station for electricity. Well, this floods it washed away Power Dam. Wow, That's so this was really, was this the largest flood known on, on record in this area? In this area it was, yes. And it was the worst drought as well. This was back to back. One of the worst droughts, yes. Well, and you know, it's it's ironic that we're talking about this right now because New Mexico is in in general severe drought. It's been years of dry weather. This winter was very dry, and this spring, record-setting uh, forest fires. I was just up by uh, west of Las Vegas, where the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire was, from what I heard, the largest recorded fire in New Mexico history. Right. And now we just changed from drought and forest fire. The last several days, it's been pretty rainy with some flooding as well. Which made it easy to fight the forest fires or almost put yeah, them it, out. Yeah. It, it put it put them out quite a bit. 
but I, I was driving around some of these flood areas and there were signs everywhere about the fire danger. So yeah. it, it seems like in this area we can go from very dry to very wet very quickly. Exactly. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, there was a tourist camp here in Santa Rosa that was located at the western edge of, of where the Pecos River is. They call it the, the Dew Drop In. Kind of drop in because you're dropping in right by the right by the by the bridge by the Pecos River. Part of that was washed away by the flood in 1937. The floodwaters were so high that I remember an elderly friend of mine, who was a boy then, his his uh, father owned a gas station across the river, right next to the river, telling me that he could go out in the river, lay down, and touch the river waters from the bridge. Wow, so it was right up to the bridge. Right up to the bridge, yeah. But the bridge held. We were lucky. You know, I was looking at the map. So the Pecos River obviously runs down from the Sangre de Cristo all the way down to here. Yeah. But there's the the reservoir, the dam and the reservoir and lake just upstream. So it, it looked to me like, okay, there's probably not so much flood risk, at least from riverine flooding here. Is that true or is there still some risk? The, in- the, the risk of floods has kind of disappeared. Now, the problem is that every once in a while there'll be a cloudburst between dams. A few years ago, there was a cloudburst near Klein's Corners, uh, which washes into the Pecos River at Agua Negra, which is where the man I told you about with the cross uh, lived at. Now, that, that cloudburst was so severe that it, cro- it caused a lot of flooding down south uh, between Santa Rosa and the Alamogordo Dam. Now, it didn't go beyond the Alamogordo Dam because the dam held the waters back. Heavy rain at Klein's Corners that comes into the Pecos, will yes. that affect Santa Rosa or come in uh, downstream from us? It'll here? come downstream from us. It'll but affect but then it'll affect areas then. It'll affect Puerto Luna, yes. Yeah, I was uh, down by Cl- Klein's Corners yesterday and there was a very heavy thunderstorm in the desert. Yeah. And I was amazed how quickly even a dirt road turns into a creek bed, basically. Exactly. Um, it, it can it can happen really suddenly. So that's really interesting. It sounds like you're saying even between dams, there can be localized flooding. There can be. Well, no, one other story that I remember locals talking about was that after the railroad first came in, one of the first floods that they experienced after the railroad, remember the railroad came in in 1901, was there was a very serious flood in 1907. The only bridge here was a railroad bridge. The local bridge, the highway bridge across Highway 66 hadn't been built yet. There was no Highway 66. The railroad was so worried that their bridge would get washed away that they had a locomotive, a freight train, that they took and they parked on top of the bridge, uh, hoping that the added weight would keep the bridge down. Well, it worked, I guess, because the bridge lasted, and the bridge has been around ever since. And so for the duration of the flood, they parked a train up on top of the exactly. bridge to try to weigh it down. That's really interesting history. Uh, uh, very interesting how railroads have shaped this area around here. And, and back in, in, in those days, in the early days, because the, the locomotives were steam-powered, there was a bridge located south of Santa Rosa called the Pintado Canyon Bridge. Uh, the bridges were wooden, and the problem with wooden bridges is that sparks fly from locomotives. So they used to have someone go out there and inspect the bridge every day after each, after each train crossed. One day, I guess, the, the worker decided to be out drinking or partying or something, didn't inspect the bridge, and guess what? The bridge caught fire and burned down. Wow. 
It's tremendous. Now, to talk about the power of the railroad and, and the resources they had, it took the railroad four days to completely rebuild that bridge. During that time, they went to the Cloudcraft area. They cut down the timbers. They had them brought back down to Pintado Station, and the bridge was rebuilt. And needless to say, they got a new watchman to guard the, the, the bridges. It can happen so quickly. And just in my little time here, even with the rain we had this last weekend, it can get very dry and very, very sunny here. I could see how things exactly. like bridge timbers could really dry out here. Yeah. I was at the library and uh, Dina had mentioned, she said, you know, even though the Pecos doesn't really flood so much here, she said, if you get a heavy rain, water will actually move through the soil sometimes. And she, she had felt like even in the library, sometimes water can go underneath the building mm-hmm. um, because I suppose there's limestone. There's a lot of gaps in the soil. Is that right around here? There is. And uh, in different parts of the, t- of the community, you can dig just a few feet and you hit water. So it's a very high water table. It's a very high water table. I know that uh, the area we're sitting in now, back in the early 1900s, was part of the big lake. It was. The, the lake was drained, and now there's a part of the community which is located here. And there are several natural uh, reservoirs and lakes. Uh, this brings a lot of tourism to the area. Is that As right? a matter of fact, I have a picture here from 1935, and you can see that we're about over here now. Where am I at? We're about over here. But look where Santa Rosa was. Santa Rosa ended where that next street is at now. Everything else is green. You can see Park, what is Park Lake over there. Uh, if we walk through Santa Rosa's demographics and population, there's obviously this large growth with the railroad in the early 1900s. And then do things kind of level off through the 20th century? It leveled off after that. And then there were different things that were driving the population. Uh, before the war, uh, People were satisfied being sheep herders, farmers, and things like that. But after World War II, some of the men, that, and many men served, went out and they saw what the rest of the world was like. So when they came back, they didn't want to be a, a shepherd. They didn't want to be a farmer. They saw that they could work for an air, as a mechanic in California, that they could work at a railroad station in Arizona, that they could have some of the jobs. So there was a shift in population after the war from Santa Rosa to other urban areas, especially uh, states of Arizona and California. And this was an exodus of the local population. It was an exodus of the local population, right. So did the population slightly decrease then, maybe in the 50s? The, the pop- population has decreased ever since. And we're, we're right now, the population is kind of steady, but it's not what it was back in the 50s. We're a lot smaller than... Well, we're in the 50s. Then the whole concept of Route 66 is so iconic. You know, you, it's in the movies, it's in books, it's all this history with it, and often tied with the automobile. I mean, how did that whole era, I mean, and that extends really from the Great Depression through the 40s and 50s, like past the war, right? When I was in high school, my generation depended on Highway 66 for part-time jobs. There were lots of restaurants in Santa Rosa, there were lots of gas stations. If you went down to Highway 66, uh, and you, you could literally run out of fingers to count the different gas stations that were there and run out of fingers to count the different restaurants. Now if you go out there, you'll see maybe two gas stations, maybe two motels, maybe one restaurant. Not the many restaurants and gas stations and motels that existed back then. So um, is what partly changed with Interstate 40 coming through and people using Interstate that Interstate 40 changed a lot of that. 
The other thing that may have changed is how people do business. Back then, there were the, the, corner, the corner grocery store was the big seller for furnishing, providing food for people and things like that. Now people would rather go to Walmart or one of these big uh, box stores to, to buy the groceries. So I noticed around here there's a lot of authentic, you know, mom and pop restaurants or uh, very uh, unique. They're not they're not chains. They're not big box stores. Exactly. It's that old history. Uh, you're saying some of that got lost, especially maybe with the interstate coming through. The best memory that I have is, as a, as a former educator, during the summers after after the school year was out, I was wor- I would work at a, as a as a desk clerk at one of the motels, the Western Motel. And in 19, I think it was 1973, or it could have been 1974, there was a movie being filmed partially in Santa Rosa and in Estancia. And I had the honor of meeting Linda Carter, who was either a Miss, Miss America or Miss USA and had competed in the Miss Universe contest. She was a movie star, a rising star, and she stayed at, at the motel where I was a desk clerk for a couple of nights while they were filming scenes in the Santa Rosa area. Well, that's a good point. They did film a lot along the highway, and then the Southwest too. There were a lot of westerns filmed out here, right? Well, one it's of the just... scenes they filmed was a bull because of the the the, the nature, the the beauty of, of I'm sorry, not blue hole, Hidden Lake, because of the size of the lake, the background of the, and the scenery and everything else, made a, a perfect backdrop for for, for filming. Uh, one or two scenes for that movie. So it, the, the name of the movie was Bobby Joe and the Outlaw. I'm gonna have to check that out. I like to see these references in places where I've been. You know, it makes it, it helps it come to come alive. You know. All right. Later on, Linda Carter became Wonder Woman. Really? Okay, this is fast. So, so that Highway 66 for a teenager, for a young man, young woman, it provided obviously jobs and economic opportunities. But then you'd meet all these interesting people passing exactly, through. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So did you, I'd imagine you met a lot of people probably from the, maybe the Midwest or the East that were possibly going out to California. One of the nights I remember, oh, someone coming in kind of late about one o'clock in the morning and uh, uh, one other room for him and his family. So I checked him in. As he was filling out the, the, the registration card, I looked at it and I said, it can be. And it was. He was the, 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 the singer, and I can't forget it. I can't remember his name right now who sang Honey. Honey was one of my favorite songs at that time. And there he was. And there he was right in front of me, filling out the registration card. Needless to say, after he paid, I made sure I kept a copy of that registration card for myself because Honey was was one of my favorite songs. And there he is, the guy that sings that. And, and there he is. You know, I'd imagine with um, such a high-profile transportation route and a lot of people then were going out to california too right to maybe try to strike it big in hollywood or population growth was booming in southern california right nowadays you don't see that many people actually traveling by car because most of them have their own planes i think yeah right if you're a if you're an entertainer or one of the stories that a lot of people talk about is that in the mid-1960s at one of the restaurants that since closed it was called tiffin's uh, there was a, a, a Hollywood star, a singer, that was staying at the motel next door. He just had a movie out of, there was a, just a movie out about him, Elvis Presley. Now, he didn't go eat at the restaurant, but he ordered carry-out from the restaurant. And I still remember the, the, the friend who was a cook there was a friend of mine, Ernest Pacheco, 
and people were all excited because he got to cook a meal for Elvis Presley. A lot of pa- famous people pass through here. Exactly. Huh? Speaking of Elvis Presley, that movie is in the local theater. So there's a theater know, uh, yeah. downtown, and this exactly. looks like it was restored, right? Yeah. That's the movie The movie playing right now I saw is Elvis Presley, and it looked like a really sharp historic theater. And the the the, the reviews I've seen on, on TV for that movie are, are really great reviews. It's a very good movie. Um, now that we're talking about the theater, so it's been restored, will it show movies every night or uh, several times per week? I guess it depends on what the what the turnout is. Of course, during COVID, they had to take real serious precautions to make sure that the, they couldn't do certain things. But with technology, the showing of movies is a lot simpler now than back in the old days when, when you had a movie. You had these big uh, reels that came in, and you had to load them, unload them, wind them up, and everything else. And now I think a lot of those things are done electronically, so you don't have to load and unload, you'd simply download a movie and are able to show it in high definition to your audience. Dan, what what runs the economy around here today? The biggest thing for the economy is still tourism, which is some gas stations, the motels, the restaurants. Now, the other things that run the government are local, that run the economy are local government both the city and the county and the schools. The schools, those three are probably the biggest employers in in our county. Dan, what about ranching today? I saw south of here some big ranches. There's uh, still some big ranches, uh, but the ranchers nowadays use less workers because, of course, now instead of having to have people on horses, they have people in different kinds of vehicles that they're able to go out and do the work that uh, it took cowboys and horseback to do back in the good old days. Dan, with GeoTrack, we're really interested in adventure travel, getting out, exploring the world, but also extreme weather, disasters, anything like that. Does anything else come to mind about this area that you'd like to share um, just, you know, as far as the history that people on the outside might find interesting? One of the biggest things that, uh, that I think is interesting is that before Santa Rosa actually became Santa Rosa back in the 1800s, People referred to this area as Los Sotanos. The Sotanos is a sinkhole. And the reason for that is that there's lots of sinkholes in the area. And the sinkholes are simply something that is not going away. Every once in a while, depending on what the weather's like, if there's drought, there'll be a sinkhole. Uh, our lakes are sinkholes. A blue Hole is a sinkhole. Uh, is that ever an issue with, like, have you ever heard of someone's house gets partly a sinkhole in it or something like that? To give an idea of, of it being an issue, back in, I think it was the 70s, the east, the westbound lane of Highway 66, just out of Santa Rosa, just a mile or so out, had a sinkhole where they had to quickly reroute everyone from 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 the two lanes to one lane and go back and fix up the sinkhole that was there. Now, not too far from there, in the early 50s, there was a, a cavern that Santa Rosa thought about having their own Carlsbad cavern back then. But for some reason, that never became a reality. But because of the danger involved with it, they had to seal it off with a, with a metal uh, barriers to keep people from going in and causing damage or from getting hurt. Are there some caves around here? There are some caves. The ones that that I've read about, 
that have been used by people is in Vaughan. In the early 1900s, when students were having parties, they would go have a party at one of the caves. Now, I don't know where the cave is at, but it's close to Vaughan. And there were actually uh, stalactites and stalagmites in that cave. Now, it makes sense because wherever there are sinkholes, that means there's a cavern or a cave or a hole underneath it. When the sotano comes, uh, that means the top coll collapses into the bottom. And if there's lots of water, you get what we have at, at Blue Hole and what we have at the Power Dam. And those are just two examples of the water holes that we have here. Do you know um, if, if some of these sinkholes have opened up like after a heavy rain, or do you not know if that's really happened? I don't know, but uh, sometimes in, in different parts of town, after after heavy rains or things like that happen, you'll have little tiny dips in the highway or on the street where someone has to go in and, and uh, they have to redo it to cover up the hole to make sure that it doesn't get worse. And fill it up. Um, you know, people definitely all over the world have heard of Carlsbad Caverns. And a lot they of times where you have one cave that's well known, you may have a lot of others. And exactly. Sinkholes. It seems like that's a big part of the local geology here. Yeah, it is. The thing, the difference between Carlsbad and Santa Rosa is that we're a lot higher than Carlsbad. Some people used to think that we were part of the Carlsbad system, but uh, it wouldn't be possible because they're lower than we are. I see. So it's really different. The elevation here is upper 4,000s about? We're or? almost a mile in different parts, yeah, upper 4,000s. What about the winter time here? Can you get some pretty heavy snow, pretty severe we weather? We can, but usually it's uh, the, 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 we have real nice winters. Now, every a lot of sunshine. While, once in a while you get those severe storms that uh, cause uh, the city to close down. When I was in high school in the 60s, I remember there was one storm that was so severe, everything shut down. And the National Guard had to come into Santa Rosa with tanks to open up Highway 66. The National Guard also had to use uh, freight planes to go out to ranches to drop feed alfalfa for the ranchers, for their, for their stock to, to be able to get food. I know a lot of retirees move out here because of the sunshine, the great it's weather. Great. Great. It seems like a really good place to live and it to is. retire. Dan, appreciate you coming on the GeoTrek podcast. I learned a lot. This is an area of the country that I, I've passed through once or twice, but haven't really spent time. And I thought, I, I just love the substance of this town. It seems like there's it's a lot super, of history. It's super. The people that have been unbelievably friendly that I've met today. It's been a, well, a thanks, great visit. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's, thank it's you so much. It's good to know that, that I have that kind of neighbors. And uh, Dan, so you formerly were a teacher, and now you're really, when I was at the library, they said you have to talk to our local historian. I retired after 40 years, uh, 12 years ago as a, as a school teacher. The last 16 of those years, I was the high school, the local district school superintendent. And of course, when I was a teacher, I was a history teacher. That's why I have a love for history. I see. And just at the library, Dina said, look, this whole shelf is full of Dan Flores' books. I, I can see you've written prolifically, and it seems like you're still very active in research, I, right? I try to be. It's interesting. It's, it, I find it so fascinating. I mean, especially when you find a new fact about something going on. Yeah. Um, last thing I want to ask you, Dan, the relationship with Mexico, with, um, you know, um, say, say economically throughout history with people, maybe, you know, migrant workers coming in or people traveling from here to across the border. Has there been a lot of back and forth through, through time? There has been a lot. And as a matter of fact, uh, when I was growing up, we didn't like being called Mexicans. A lot of people would consider us as Mexicans. Uh, we would say we're not Mexicans, we're Spanish-Americans. 
Spanish Americans was a, was a term used then. Now we're either Hispanic, we're either Hispanics or Latinos. But the thing is, even though we didn't like being called Mexicans, most of us, when we're growing up, grew up in a Spanish where in a home in which our first language was Spanish. But we didn't call it Spanish; we call it Mexicano. So we were talking Mexicano, but we weren't Mexicanos; we were Hispanics. That's a really interesting history, and obviously a lot of uh, connection with um, with the country of Mexico. But um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I, I appreciate you taking time to share your perspective right. and um, share the, your vast knowledge here of the local landscape and history. Well, thank you for coming by. It's, it's, it's always a pleasure to talk to different people that come in wanting information and to listen to them because they have information also to share. I really admire, I, I knocked on your door and you just yelled, come on in. I, I want to be like that as, as, you know, through my life, just that I'm, <laughs> I'm open and invite people in and, you know. I think that's great. Um, so and I really enjoyed it. And don't forget, my dog is the one that invited me. He did, first. Punky, right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, Punky's very friendly and uh, came right up and was licking me and uh, greeted me right away at the door. He was hoping you had a treat for him. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. I appreciate you taking time today and, um, and uh, for coming on the podcast. All right. It's been an honor. Thank you, Dan, for coming on the podcast. Wow, we covered a lot of local history in this episode. A few notes for our listeners. If you've never read the book or watched the movie The Grapes of Wrath, definitely check it out. It's an American classic introducing us to a difficult but special time in American history. As Dan Flores mentioned, the car and the train scene was filmed right here in Santa Rosa, New Mexico. And we now know that the car was actually traveling east instead of west when they shot that in the movie. Steinbeck's work covers some deep and difficult social issues of that time period and also gives us a deeper perspective of the impacts of the tremendous drought during the Depression, a time called the Dust Bowl. Drought is becoming an ever-increasingly high-impact hazard. Sometimes droughts have extended from the western states east to the Great Plains. Other times, the two regions are separate, with one observing drought while the other is not. The worst droughts in the southern plains, where the migrants left to go west in the Dust Bowl, occurred in the 1930s, 1950s, and again in the late 2000s and early 2010s. Currently, extreme drought stretches from Texas and New Mexico, north and west throughout much of the western U.S. In the podcast, Dan shared the story about the desperation of the local population as the 1930s drought grew worse, peaking in the year 1937. He shared how one man took down his cross display out of frustration, but then extreme rains and flooding came quickly. This is a pattern that sometimes affects the southwestern U.S. as long-term drought can suddenly turn to floods, especially if plentiful monsoon moisture flows into the region. On a much smaller scale, this is what happened during my visit uh, this summer as I passed massive piles of sandbags in front of some homes where they were trying to protect from flood, but where drought and wildfires had just threatened weeks before. The references to sinkholes and caves are descriptive of locations with limestone geology. We see similar features in places like Florida, West Virginia, and Kentucky. Water flows through such landscapes quite rapidly, which explains why some buildings in Santa Rosa have been flooded from underneath. It also explains the challenges to creating seawalls in places like Miami, Florida, where floodwaters can travel 
through the ground underneath these seawalls. If you're ever traveling through eastern New Mexico, check out the town of Santa Rosa. The town has great character and some excellent natural landscapes to enjoy with your kids or grandkids. Blue Hole is a clear and deep water hole popular for scuba diving, and I even noticed in the local rivers and streams the water was running very clear. You can have a lot of fun in a place like this during the summertime. Thank you so much for coming along on this episode and this road trip to the town of Santa Rosa, New Mexico. The journey continues on social media at our Facebook group called GeoTrek the Community. Come on over there and uh, join the discussion about the fascinating places we explore with GeoTrek. I did want to mention one unscripted thing about traveling. We really enjoy the interstate system that enables us to travel six, 700 miles a day. When I travel on the road, I'm often on the interstates. That said, getting off the interstates and exploring these quirky, historic towns full of character, sometimes it's really worth the time and the investment. You know, Santa Rosa is right on Interstate 40, but the main historic part of the town is actually off the interstate. And it's descriptive of these towns that often are well off the interstates that may not have a Walmart may not have some of the big box stores, but they have a lot of character and a lot of history. On behalf of the GeoTrek production team, this is Dr. Howe signing off from New Mexico. Again, this is just the first part of a three-part series in the land of enchantment. Join us next week as we discover fascinating research happening at the University of New Mexico to engage high school and college students into getting out in the field and deploying instruments to measure flooding. This really helps us better predict flooding in the future. You're going to love next week's episode right here again in New Mexico, the land of enchantment. Thanks for coming along the ride. This is Dr. Hal signing off until the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Hal. Thank you so much for listening to the GeoTrek podcast. If you're wondering how we come up with such interesting topics each week, we rely on an amazing global community to help direct our scientific fieldwork, articles, and podcasts. If you have an idea for a topic or can connect us to an outstanding future podcast guest, please reach out to us on our website at geo-trek.com or on our Facebook group called GeoTrek the Community. On behalf of our GeoTrek production team, this is Dr. Hal. I'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast.